0: We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Sarah Hipworth and Luke Stewart. In the mid-1960s, young men from the United States began coming to Canada to avoid being drafted into their military, embroiled as it was at the time in enacting massive violence against the people of Vietnam. The Canadian government of the time wasn't thrilled about this, but it determined that it had no legal tools to exclude them from the country. The government did, however, issue a secret memorandum to exclude from landed immigrant status not draft dodgers, but those derisively referred to as deserters. That is, those already in the U.S. military who decided to flee to Canada rather than participate in the destruction of Vietnam. Organizations that had formed to support GIs who fled to Canada, the broader anti-war movement, and many other sectors of society mobilized, and succeeded in pushing the government of Trudeau Sr. to allow all Vietnam-era war resistors to remain in Canada. Fast forward to the early 2000s, another two U.S. invasions and occupations, and another upsurge of popular opposition to them around the world, in the United States, and even among former and present U.S. soldiers. The U.S. recolonization of Iraq faced particularly vigorous global social movement opposition even before it began, and while movements were unsuccessful in stopping the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was once again a desire to support soldiers who decided they could not, in good conscience, serve in an illegal war or in a war that integrally included illegal acts. Once again, G.I.s made their way to Canada. However, today is a very different era than the 1960s. Not only are the anti-war movement and many other social movements in a much weaker place than they were in that earlier time, but in the interim, Canada, like most industrialized countries, has developed a much more powerful and repressive set of tools for restricting who enters the country and what status they can have once they're here. U.S. soldiers seeking to avoid participating in the brutal violence inflicted on the peoples of Afghanistan and Iraq have no easy recourse to permanent status in Canada. Many have applied to become refugees, arguing that returning them to the U.S. would result in them facing persecution and jail time for their acts of conscience, yet they have consistently faced opposition from the Canadian state to their applications. The fight for full status for all resistors was won in the Vietnam era in only three years, yet here we are, twelve years after the first Iraq war resistors arrived in Canada, and the Canadian state has deported some and is still working hard to deport the rest. There is hope that the government of Trudeau Jr. might be convinced to change course, but so far no such change has occurred, and the struggle continues. Sarah Hipworth and Luke Stewart are not war resistors themselves, but they wanted to document the stories and struggles of contemporary war resistors in Canada. They have assembled a volume called Let Them Stay, U.S. War Resistors in Canada 2004-2016, which brings together oral history interviews of, and statements by, many of the resistors themselves, and important documents of the organizing that has happened in Canada to support them and to push the Canadian state to, as the title says, let them stay. Hipworth and Stewart speak with me about both past and present struggles to shelter U.S. war resistors in Canada, and about the work that went into documenting those struggles in their new book. We Spoke by Skype.
1: My name is Luke Stewart. I'm a trained historian. I received my doctorate in history. I studied the use of the Nuremberg Principles during the Vietnam War by war resistors, including draft resistors and military resistors. Since completing that at the University of Waterloo in 2014, I have since moved to Nantes, France.
2: My background is in English and comparative literature, and I went into publishing. I did an internship at Archipelago Books in Brooklyn and an internship at Coach House Books in Toronto. And it was really my internship with Coach House that started me off thinking about a project like this. That was in 2007. During my internship with Coach House, we did an interview with Stan Bevington, the head coach, and he spoke of his involvement with the Vietnam Draft Dodgers and Deserters. And he did a lot of print ephemera related to their arrival. He housed them. He taught them how to use the printing presses. He made border crossing rubber stamps and printed false documents for them. And it made me feel at that time that maybe I could do something for our generation of resistors. I'd been reading about in the news. I wanted to do something like the Manual for Draft Age Immigrants to Canada or La La La, which were both books that came out for the Vietnam War resistors. I ended up working on that for four years. And I interviewed as many people as I could, trying to create another version of the Manual for drafted Immigrants to Canada. And it was a silly idea. It was ill advised. It wasn't based on the actual needs of deserters, but of the fervor and support of the 60s and 70s that I wanted to recreate for them. And during that time, I interviewed the older resistors, but I also began talking to members of the War Resistor support campaign and attending War Resistor meetings. So that was my totally unworkable idea, and while I was doing that, Luke was working on his independent book that was recording the stories, the oral histories of these war resisters. The book had been submitted to a couple of publishing houses, but it wasn't accepted, and that's when I became involved. I think that's how Luke and I got in touch. He was a member of the War Resister Support Campaign. I was a member of the War Resistor Support Campaign, and we were both working on different books. Luke had the better idea, and I became involved with that project.
1: We were working on, you know, parallel tracks over the years, but it was really after 2010 that I became much more involved with the War Resisters and the War Resisters support campaign. I had a rough idea about what the campaign was doing and what the War Resisters were doing. It wasn't until I became challenged by the death of the radical historian Howard Zinn in January of 2010 to actually do something with what I was professionally engaged in. That's when I decided to become more engaged with the War Resisters. And out of that engagement came an idea to do an oral history project in 2011 related to a conference I had organized. And out of that, by 2012, the idea then morphed into a book project a book which took the stories of the war resistors in Canada during the War on Terror and including, in a second half, some important primary source documents from the war resistors support campaign, as well as from the legal battle.
0: Let's maybe start off with some of the broader historical context. So, paint listeners just a brief picture of war resistors in the Vietnam era.
1: Beginning roughly in 1966, the bombing of North and South Vietnam had increased dramatically. In the, the year previously, draft calls had increased. They had tripled. And in some cases, by 1966, about 35 40,000 people a month were being drafted. And so by this time, 1965, 1966, it was inescapable, if you were between the age of 18 and 26, the question about Vietnam. And so some people could get student deferments if they went to university or college. But a majority of Americans were exposed to being drafted during the Vietnam War. And in 1966, the first few draft resistors, draft dodgers, whichever term you would like to use, started trickling into Canada. The first aid groups were set up in various parts of Canada, Vancouver, Toronto and Montreal were the largest urban centers accepting draft dodgers at this time. It's by November 1966 that the government of Canada starts really beginning to ask seriously whether they can accept draft dodgers into Canada. And under the laws at the time, there was no way to exclude draft dodgers. But then by 1968, 1969, enough Military deserters, that is, those who were actually in the military, had also started coming to Canada. And so these were people who either were drafted or people who volunteered for the military. And in fact, the numbers suggest that something like 40% of the people who did end up coming to Canada as military deserters were people who volunteered instead of being drafted. And from the very beginning, the Canadian government under Lester Pearson was very, very adamant that it did not want to accept military deserters from the United States into Canada as landed immigrants. And so it took these aid groups, which were set up many, many years and lots of interviews with draft dodgers and deserters to finally discover this secret policy that the Pearson government had initiated, Operational Memorandum 117 which basically said that we can't exclude draft dodgers, but we can exclude deserters. And by the beginning of 1969, this came to a head where the groups which were set up in the various areas in Canada, accepting deserters and dodgers, basically pressured the Canadian government at that time now under Pierre Trudeau to move any policy which excludes military deserters because it's unfair and it's not against any law. And at that time... In March 1969, the immigration minister, Alan McKechn, was proposing to the cabinet to actually institute an official policy to exclude military deserters. But because of the pressure brought to bear by the anti-draft movement in Canada, the anti-war movement in Canada, which involved many different groups, the government was forced to reverse. And in May 1969, the government of Canada officially announced that it was no longer excluding military deserters. And so we're talking here about three years, roughly, where between 1966 and 1969, there was a secret policy of excluding military deserters. To bring it to the present, though, what the current-day Iraq war resistors are doing is different than what Vietnam war resistors were doing, because Vietnam war resistors were coming to Canada and applying for landed immigrant status, so to become permanent residents in Canada. And Iraq war resistors because of changes to immigration law, including the fact that you can no longer apply for permanent resident status within Canada, you have to do it outside of Canada, the Iraq war resistors beginning in 2004 were advised by their legal counsel to apply for refugee status as people who feared persecution by the United States military for refusing to participate in the war in Iraq. So that three years during the Vietnam War has now been superseded during the current conflicts. And we are in now the 12th year of Iraq war resistors and now Afghan war resistors seeking some kind of legal status in Canada. And it's it's here where we stand still to this day. There's been no successful conclusion to this lingering question of whether Canada can accept War resistors from the United States who refuse to participate in illegal wars or who refuse to participate in illegal methods of warfare which contravene the Geneva Conventions or the Hague Conventions.
0: What kinds of things did you hear from contemporary war resistors about their reasons for becoming war resistors?
1: I think there's been now a kind of a disconnect since the Vietnam War. In a broad sense, In Canada and the United States, everyone kind of remembers or can think about hearing about draft dodgers coming to Canada during the Vietnam War. But for many of the people who came up, if they thought about that at all, it was very much in the back of their minds. Fundamentally, the first person who came, Jeremy Hinsman, in January 2004, was seeking a way to avoid participating in the war in Iraq. And he states that explicitly, He had joined the military. He was a paratrooper. And by all accounts, he was a good soldier. And at first, he was given orders to deploy to Afghanistan. Over basic training, his ideas began to evolve. He describes this in detail. And he began to move towards studying and practicing Buddhism. He began going to Quaker meetings. His son, Liam, was born. And in this atmosphere of also becoming a, a trained killer in the U.S. military, he basically said to himself after discussions with his family that he could not actually pull the trigger and kill somebody. And so he applied for conscientious objector status. It's unclear what happened with his first application, but his first application was, for lack of a better word, disappeared. Jeremy had to reapply for a second time for conscientious objection, and he was by then given orders to deploy to Afghanistan. So he was given his official hearing for conscientious objector status in Afghanistan. His application was denied, but he was doing kitchen duties and stuff like that on base. And it was when he returned from Afghanistan that he found out in 2003 that he would be deployed in early 2004 to Iraq and to go and fight in what was then a raging military occupation. And so after discussing with his wife, they came in January 2004 to Canada as a way of immediately removing himself from the position of being sent to a war that he did not believe in, which he thought was illegal under international law. I think in 2004, 2005, 2006, the subsequent people who came, up until 2008 even, when the last people came it was to avoid participating in an illegal war in Iraq. Or for those who participated in the war in Afghanistan, they were refusing specific war crimes that they were associated with in Afghanistan. During this time, it was discovered, of course, that there was no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. In 2004, the Abu Ghraib prisoner abuse torture scandal was released and increasingly, the brutality of the war shocked those who went to fight it. Joshua Key is a perfect example of this, who did a tour of duty in Iraq. And he was basically the foot soldier going in and stomping down doors in the middle of the night during house raids. And his conscience was shocked by what he was being asked to do and what he was seeing on the ground in Iraq. And when he returned home for his two weeks of rest and relaxation before he went back to Iraq... He went underground in the United States for quite a while, I believe, until he actually came to Canada and applied for refugee status, and his, his case is still ongoing as well. So I think ultimately, we're dealing with people here of extreme integrity and humility who do not want to be associated with illegal actions and are seeking the protection of the Canadian government. The Vietnam connection comes with the help from the War Resistors support campaign, Many of these people in the campaign were actually Vietnam War resistors and that's kind of where the legacy lives on.
2: All the stories touch me and are very unique. Gene Walcott, he was outside of the realm of the fighting. He worked in a hospital setting, but the destruction he witnessed of civilian life, he just couldn't handle. Every story has its own compelling reason for wanting to support the War resistors. Kimberly Rivera was a mother, she worked at Walmart, she felt like she couldn't raise a family on that income, and she she decided to join the military, and what she was involved with in Iraq, she would have to pat down small children, and she said, I would never allow this to happen to my own children.
0: Tell me more about the book itself.
2: There's their reasons for coming to Canada, what has happened to them since they've arrived in Canada... There's an interview with Joshua Key by Lawrence Hill about what has happened since the release of the book they did together, The Deserter's Tale. So there's an update to that book. Michael Valpy did the first interview from a national newspaper with Jeremy Hinsman when he arrived, and he did an updated interview with Jeremy Hinsman and his wife to ask them how they're doing in Canada now. So yes, the first half of the book broadly encompasses all their experiences from signing up for the war to what happened to them in Canada and what continues to happen to them in Canada. The second half of the book is the history of the war resisters support campaign and what's happening in Canada right now with regards to military resistors and Canadian law and also international law.
1: With the second half of the book for people who this was the first time they were reading about the War Resisters in Canada, we really wanted to provide the ability to find out for themselves reading the actual, you know, declaration of the War Resister Support Campaign from 2004 when it was initiated, where they could read a press release by the War Resister Support Campaign about why they were organizing, or they could read statements from the Canadian Council of Churches or from Amnesty International about why they supported the war resistors. And so this is picking the most important and representative documents from the now 12-year campaign, the war resistor support campaign, to get some kind of, it doesn't have to be refugee status, it could be permanent residence, granted at a ministerial level within the government of Canada but official recognition that these individuals and their families are allowed to stay in Canada. And so with that selection, we provide the reader the ability to see how the campaign has evolved and what kind of literature it has put out to inform the public, not just in Canada, but also in the United States and internationally. At a certain point at the height of the Iraq war, I think People involved in the anti-war movement knew there were soldiers coming to Canada. And I think the war resister support campaign was a major vehicle of raising that awareness, not only in Canada, but as I said, in the United States and internationally. The major landmarks of this struggle for the war resisters to remain in Canada includes things like, by 2008, almost four in five Canadians disapproved of the war in Iraq. And at the same time in 2008, 60% of Canadians in a poll included in the book said that U.S. war resistors from Iraq should be allowed to stay in Canada. And so that took four years of work. And I'm sure if you ask those involved in the campaign and those war resistors who came, it wasn't an easy task because of the obstruction by the Canadian government. And also at that time in 2008 and then in 2009, there were two non-binding Motions in parliament led by Olivia Chow of the NDP to seek some kind of, and I believe it was permanent residence for the war resistors in Canada because of the position the Harper government had at the time it ignored these two motions in parliament. And then a private members bill by Gerard Kennedy, who was a liberal in 2010, again seeking what these non-binding parliamentary motions were asking for. It failed unfortunately. But that was kind of the moment where politically the campaign had reached its impasse with the Harper government in 2010. And the legal avenue at the same time was opening up more possibilities for the resistors in the courts. The legal history of the war resistors in Canada is a very interesting one. And I think it's not over yet as it's still winding its way through the courts. And we're waiting for what the new liberal government under Justin Trudeau will do. But we've included as well in the second half of the book, Sarah did an excellent interview with the War Resisters lawyer, Alyssa Manning, and we've included excerpts from the important court decisions through the legal history since 2004 with the War Resisters. And so we're really wanting to give the reader as much information as possible to complement what the War Resisters themselves are saying through their personal statements, through their interviews with us, through their own writings. We want to give, and I I think we do, give the reader a representative display of what exactly has been going on for 12 years now with the war resistors in Canada.
0: What kinds of impacts do you hope this book makes? What kind of work do you want it to do out in the world?
1: You can read the book two ways. You can read the book as individual stories, and you can read the book as a collective history of war resistance in the 21st century, cross-border war resistance. And so if you take each individual story, they're compelling on their own. I mean, these are individuals who, for many different reasons, joined the U.S. military and discovered that what they were asked to do was immoral, unjust, or illegal, or all three. These stories are compelling on their own, but taken together, it paints a portrait of Canada in the 21st century and how the government of Canada operates – with the question of, can we allow U.S. war resistors into Canada and give them sanctuary? And at the other end of this is what the Canadian public believes. And what the Canadian public has said, and this was just recently in another poll, which was just done in 2016, the same number of Canadians, again, over 60% of Canadians, agree that we should be letting war resistors stay in Canada. So you have what the government does and you have what the Canadian people do. It's an interesting interplay. And I think what the book will hopefully show to people today is that they can easily get involved with the campaign for sanctuary for US war resistors, that there's documents which have been accumulated over 12 years, which show how to do a petition, how to, you know, lobby the Canadian government, how to organize meetings. It demonstrates to people that there's a process in building movements, and these things just don't come out of nowhere. And it's a lot of work, but it's also something very rewarding to become involved with. The book at the moment that we're in now provides a framework, a guidebook for what to do in the moment, but also 40 years from now, I think we both hope somebody will still pick up this book on a shelf And see what happened in the early 2000s in Canada for U.S. war resistors, much like Sarah and I had picked up books from the Vietnam era and were inspired by them and still ring true today because the issues are not much different despite the political landscape changing. And so what provides me hope about this book is that it will introduce the stories of the war resistors to people who haven't heard about them before or who have a vague idea about what these courageous individuals and families have gone through, and also will act as a guide also for future generations so they don't have to start from scratch when this happens again.
2: The book, for me, it's important because it shows just how reasonable, how compelling, how much sense it makes to let the war resistors stay and indeed to expand the laws, the immigration laws for people who do these things that great personal sacrifice because of their conscience, their conscience won't allow them to do these acts of war against other people. And I think it does provide those compelling arguments from many different angles, from the personal stories to the support that Canadians have shown for the war resistors, and to show that there should be a political, if not a legal solution to allowing war resistors to stay, and possibly even in the future, allowing more to come, because they do have compelling and terribly reasonable reasons for wanting to be in Canada. And we have reasons for wanting them to stay, and those reasons are very compelling There are the longer tail issues that Luke mentioned that you'd be able to pick it up 20 years from now and say, oh, wow, look at that campaign. Look at what the war resistor support campaign did to help these resistors stay despite, you know, interference from the Canadian government or despite completely irrational decisions by some of the judges. And I think it will have staying power, and hopefully it does show the individual stories and the courage they showed in making those decisions, but also just how terribly reasonable it is to allow them to stay.
0: You have been listening to my interview with Sarah Hipworth and Luke Stewart. They're the editors of the new book, Let Them Stay, U.S. War Resisters in Canada, 2004 to 2016. To learn more about the book, Search for the title on iguanabooks.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter.